Revelation chapter 2. Let me read it before we sit down. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the words of the, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These are the very words of God. You can have a seat. So for the next seven weeks, we're walking through the second and third chapter of Revelation, where Jesus himself sends these messages to these churches in Asia. There are more churches than these, uh, but he chose these seven uh, for reasons that he's really not shared with us. Uh, But most believe that within these seven churches, you find a set of issues that are really, that are timeless struggles and timeless victories for Christians, you know, ever since the church was founded. Um, And so, Jesus has something to say to us in each of these messages. It's not just for them, and we have no connection to it. He wants to speak to us and help us to learn from their struggles. So, we start this. There's, like I said, there's seven of them. So, I'm taking the one tonight. And uh, there's five elders, two interns. So, each of us are taking one. So, I'll preach tonight. And Chris will come up next week and do the next one. And we're just going to kind of roll through over the next few weeks and see what God wants to say to us through these passages. Of the seven letters, they, are, they have six kind of categories. You know, they're kind of structured the same way. And so last week, and you can check out the podcast, um, kind of went through each of these six things and kind of explained a little bit more. Um, but uh, if you're a note taker, you'll have six kind of bullet points for each of these seven letters. Uh, so I'm going to go through them, and that's how all of our sermons are going to kind of take shape. And uh, we'll stop at various points along the way. So the first, the first point uh, is, who is this letter written to? All right. So you see in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. All right. So the angel, um, we're, we really aren't sure who the angel is. The angel, it, it could be just kind of a generic, like who, whomever is going to be responsible for getting this message to the people kind of thing. You know, so typically that would be the pastor. So you read a lot of uh, like commentaries and like scholarly writing about these things, and they approach the, they're exclusively like it's this is talking about this is to the pastor. Write this to the pastor, and he'll pass it on to the people. And other people kind of think like it kind of represents it's a personification of the people of the church. The bottom line is this is written to the saints in the city of Ephesus. All right. So what does that mean? So. Ephesus uh, was a port city. 
and uh, was along some like major trade routes. And so it was, it was kind of like any sort of major port town you know, that, that we know. So New Orleans, Miami, New York, Los Angeles, wherever. Uh, I don't know if Los Angeles is. I just made that up. Seattle, I think that's one. So, but all these, all these cities, you know, they're always near water, and it's where like trade comes and goes. So Ephesus was a like a major player in regard to the cities of of this time. Um, there were a couple hundred thousand people there, uh, and and it was exactly what you would think of when I tell you that it's a trade route and a harbor. You had people from all over the world coming and going constantly, some of them settling down, some of them just passing through. Uh, but you had this, this combination of all kinds of different beliefs and uh, you know, religious stuff and political stuff, and there's just all kinds of like, weird things that go on. And it was just kind of a, a, a city that um, was just a mixture of a bunch of things. Um, you, had, you had a lot of like, political uh, confusion a little bit, uh, and one reason is because at this time, you know, Rome was in charge, and you worshipped, like you worshipped the leadership there. Um, and so you would have to, uh, like, like, you know, like saying Jesus is Lord is something that it was a rebellion against being forced to say that Caesar is Lord. And they had Christians who would, when they were baptized, they would say Jesus is Lord, they would be baptized, and they would take them and they would kill them. Because they just swore allegiance to Jesus instead of Caesar. And it was kind of a, uh, just one of those things. And so the, the worship of Rome was a really big deal in Ephesus. And, uh, and so everybody that lived there kind of was forced to do that. And so that sort of created tension. So everybody was very like double-minded in that. So you kind of had your religious beliefs and you kind of had to worship Caesar because of, of whatever. So that was kind of confusing. Um, you also had... Um, they had the temple of Artemis. Artemis is a fertility god, uh, and this temple was one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was this huge temple and had thousands of priests and priestesses and uh, whatever. And um, because she was a fertility god, okay, there's just a lot of shady stuff going on. Um, in in Calcutta, uh, there's a there's a temple, a Hindu temple called Kali Temple. And fertility is is one of the things there, and I've been there several times, and it's just it, you just you get this just weird spirit there when you when you walk in. You can just feel the heaviness that's there, and um, it's just all about like fertility, and everything is very phallic, and it's just this whole like weird deal. Uh, sorry, sorry about that. And so uh, there's just a lot of shady stuff going on, and I'll just kind of leave, leave it there. Uh, but it was very confusing. So you had all these people who were worshiping Artemis, and there was just all this like weird stuff going on, and then all this stuff with Rome, and all these different cultures merging together, and all these people coming and going. And it was, for some people, it was like their dream city, you know, because it was so diverse and so whatever. But for a Christian, it was a difficult place to live, you know, because you're being you're being forced to worship. Rome, you know, uh, Caesar and all the Roman influence there. And then you're being, you have all this worship of this goddess and all these people coming and going in this big temple. And that's where so much of the money was made was like all around the temple and stuff. And it was just a, just a difficult place to remain loyal and pure and holy. So the saints in the church in, in Ephesus, these letters, uh, this like revelation was written in like the, the mid nineties, um, so if you go back to 
the like the church was born in like the mid 30s, right? So you have like a 60 year 60 years since this church in Ephesus was founded. So probably what happened is this. Jesus uh, ascends, right? He goes up and um, gives the Great Commission and whatever, and they're like, we don't know what to do. And someone's like, I think he said to go and pray. And so they go and they pray, and they're praying, and it's Pentecost. And so all these folks have gathered, these Jewish folks have gathered from all over the region. Uh, they're in Jerusalem, and this, God sends his Spirit. And his Spirit goes and uh, begins to literally dwell in them, and they begin to to worship in these different languages. And it's just this really just supernatural, amazing, just just, oh, just to think about it, and I know I'm not describing it very well, but just trust me, it was crazy. Uh, and so from there, they all go back. And so um, you might recognize the names Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they probably were the ones that were in, in, the, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, uh, basically became Christians, became followers of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, went back home to Ephesus, and started the church. So a little while later, the Apostle Paul, he rolls into town, and he spends like three years with them. And he's discipling and training, and people are coming to know Christ, and there's all these good things going on, and uh, all this kind of craziness. I mean, at one point, there was so much Jesus happening in Ephesus that all of the people who made money from the Temple of Artemis, like, like making all these little idols and selling all these things and all this kind of weirdness that went around the temple... Um, they started going out of business because Christians were like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And so all of the shop owners got together and like, tried to like, run them out of town. It like, caused this big riot because Christianity was bleeding into the city so effectively that everything immoral and sinful began to shut down. You know? So Ephesus at one point was, I mean, it was rolling. Like, it was, like Jesus was doing some phenomenal thing there. So Paul was there for a couple years. Uh, not too long after that, a guy named Timothy was the pastor there at this church. You might have heard of him. So he was pastor there for a long time. And then John, the Apostle John, Jesus' favorite person on the planet, was there in Ephesus as a part of this church. So you've never had a church in history that has the pastoral lineage that this church had. Paul... Timothy, John, Jesus' favorite person. So Ephesus should have just been remarkable. Like the church there should have been just crazy, amazing, whatever. So this is 60 years after that initially started. And so these people receiving this letter are probably the, the children and maybe grandchildren of that first generation, like the very first Christians ever, who were discipled by Paul and by Timothy and now by John. So this is a couple generations into it a little bit. So that's who, that's who this is written to. The saints in Ephesus, which had to have been a, just an f- incredibly difficult place to be a Christian. You're persecuted. You're constantly coming up against all these different kinds of beliefs and all this different stuff, stuff being forced on you. People would roll in. There are these false teachers that would come in, all these different strains of Judaism and Christianity and stuff and having to discern between it. And it was just a difficult place. So he sends them a letter. That's who he's writing to. And I know that's a long explanation, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to connect. It's important that we know what's going on in this city. 
so again, look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So it's written to the, the saints in Ephesus. It's from Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We know that from uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Um, Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The stars represent the angels of the churches. The lampstands represent the churches themselves. So what's really, what really, is really happening here in this verse, he's like, hey, I have a message for all, you, all the saints in Ephesus. I'm the one who, I hold you in my hand. I, there's control, there's strength, there's security when he says that. He says, hey, you, the church in Ephesus, I'm holding you. And I'm, I'm walking among you, like I'm present. I'm with you. I haven't pulled my chair up to the edge of heaven. I haven't heard through the grapevine how things are going. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've watched it. I've, I've felt it. You know, I'm, I'm holding you and I'm walking among you. I'm in it with you. So that's who it's to. The second thing is who is it from? Jesus. The third component in all the letters is an evaluation, and that's where he, that's where he goes next. And the evaluations, there's, there's two possibilities. With, he's either going to commend things, or he's going to rebuke them for some things. Some churches only have one. Most of them have both. Ephesus has both. So let's look at the, the commendations that happen in his evaluation. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance... And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So look at some of the things he's rattling off. He's like, hey, I know your works. Why? Because I walk among you. I hold you, right? I know your works. I know your toil. I know your endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil. He's like, look, I know you don't put up with foolishness, you know? I, don't, I know you don't, you don't tolerate what's going on at the temple of Artemis. I know you don't think Caesar is a lord. I know you don't put up with that stuff. And you don't put up with people in the congregation, like kind of dabbling with those things. And you're just, I just want to go check it out. Like, no, no, no. That's not who you are. It's like, I know, I know you don't put up with that stuff. Um, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. These randoms that roll into town and they say all these things they know about Jesus and all this kind of stuff, and you're like, nope, not true. Because in Acts 25, one of the things that Paul told the elders, the Ephesian elders, and our elders go through this text about once a year, just kind of refocusing and, and listening into some things, and he tells them, he says, There are going to be wolves among you. There are going to be people who, who rise up in the church, and they're going to preach and teach and say things that are false. And, and he doesn't really say this explicitly, but it's implicit. He says, you've got to put them down. Because as shepherds among the sheep, what do you do with a wolf? You put them down. And you let the sheep see you put it down. Uh, and so he's, Jesus is saying, like, you've done this. What Paul told the original elders has been passed on, and you've done a good job of refuting error. You haven't put up with lies and... All that kind of stuff. And so when these, these jokers come into town, you've put them right out the door, just like I told you to, and that's good. And I know to us it might sound kind of harsh, but uh, 
it's, it's important. It's a role that our elders value and are, uh, it's important. Fortunately, uh, like we, don't have, we haven't dealt with it really. I mean, a little bit here and there, but no one that's like, there's not been like a coup, you know, of some sort, a theological coup that uh, has, has, happens in a lot of churches, you know, so we had to put anybody down yet. Verse 3, I did say yet, so just, verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, okay? It's almost like he's saying, look, I, I know how hard it is to, to live in this city and have the pressure of worshiping Caesar, and have the pressure with this temple of Artemis that's there, and it's the focus of so much, and there's so much immorality and garbage that's there, I, and, and the, the pressure that comes your way, and how, see, see Christianity initially was just considered like kind of a sect of Judaism, and so they kind of got like protection underneath that umbrella that Rome kind of extended to the Jewish faith, but then as Christianity began to take root and really grow, people started to realize, like, wait, these people are... They're not Jewish, you know? Like, they're separatists in a way. Like, they're against all these things. They're, they're not what we thought they were. And they got persecuted because of it. And so Jesus is like, saying, he's like, look, I know that you've been enduring for my name's sake. I know you've been putting up with, with a lot and you've been hanging in there. And I'm so proud of you for that. This is, this is goodness, coming from the one who holds them in his right hand and who walks among them. Jesus of Nazareth is weighing in on this church, and he's like, look at these great things. These are so good. And then comes verse 4. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. All right, now let's, let's, just, let's just hit pause there for a second. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. In the Greek, the most important word in that sentence is first. Um, he's, not, he's not saying, like Jesus is not saying like, hey, you're doing all these great things, but you forgot about me. Hey, I'm over here. It's like, no, that's, that's not it. It's, it's first. It's a... It's the kind of love you had for me at first. It's that, like, newlywed love. It says you've abandoned that. You've forgotten that. You've drifted away from that. You're doing all these great things. But I have this against you. You've forgotten the love you had at first. At first love. And so, it's easy for us to be like, okay, I see. I see what he's saying. I see what he's saying. Get that. Okay. So we just need to like, love you, love you more. Got it. You know? And then you see the next verse. The next verse is what we're, what we're calling... Uh, this is the fourth point, calling it an exhortation, which is a, a call to action. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. That's the exhortation. I'm going to come back to that in, in a minute because that's really important. Uh, and that's his call to action. And this is what he's saying. This is what you need to do about it. But look at the next part, which is the fifth point, which is the warning that he gives. He says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's his warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He said, this is what I have against you, and if you don't fix it, I'm going to show up and snuff out the lampstand from Ephesus. And that is exactly what it sounds like. He's going to come in, and he's going to take the light out of the city. This group of people, these saints, are going to no longer be a church. And so several weeks ago when we, we kind of landed on this as the summer teaching series and kind of all divvied it all up or whatever, and I was like, I'll take the first one, that would be great. And uh, man, as a pastor, that's a scary text to read. It's like, you've forgotten the love you had at first. You need to repent. You need to fix it. And if you don't, no more church. And so to think of a city as dark as Ephesus, like spiritually dark, okay? All this worship of not Jesus happening, but worship of all these things, material goods and money and Artemis. And, and, and really, Artemis is really just representative of fertility in general, right? Fertility not only of, of humanity, but also like of crops and those kinds of things. And so a worship of how crops bring money and even kids and stuff and how that, that can be an idol and like all this, all this idolatry and all this darkness and all this whatever. And, and here's this lamp sitting in the middle. And they're bringing some light, man. Mid-30s, Priscilla and Aquila come back from their trip to Pentecost, and they were like, you got you to hear this. And it starts going, and Paul comes in and disciples them and gets them all ready, and they're going. And that whole group, of they, they had kids, and they started kind of discipling their kids, and then that group had kids, and they kind of discipled their kids. And over a 60-year span, what happens? A absolute adoration and love for Jesus as the one has faded like sometimes happens in a marriage. And I'm not talking about our marriages here, but like culturally, like what's always the joke, you know? Looking back, oh yeah, let's watch the wedding video, and oh, we were so in love, and now we're just bored with each other, and you know, whatever. It happens. It may not happen to you, and I pray it does not happen to you, but it happens. There's this fire, and then it dies. And Jesus is saying, that's what happened in this church. From generation to generation, it just began to die out. It's cool. It began to die out. But, it'd be so easy to come back and say, yeah, but what about all those good things? What about the doctrinal integrity? What about running out the false teachers? What about enduring persecution? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? What about all these good things? And let's think about what he's saying. Jesus is saying, you do all those things and you don't love me and I would rather... Ephesus not have a lampstand, then have a lampstand that doesn't accurately represent who I am. 
This is Jesus' refusal to let a church make church about them and what they like. First Corinthians chapter 13, you don't need to turn to it. Just listen to it. You probably heard this at a wedding. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What does a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal do? It distracts, right? If Chase Whitney was in the drum cage and through the whole sermon he was just clanging on this cymbal, right? He was like, it would just be impossible. That's what it does. It distracts away from the miracles that are happening. That's what he's saying. You take love out of it and it's distracting people away from what, it's, what those things are supposed to be pointing to in the first place. Second verse, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It's like you could do all these amazing things as a church. You can have this phenomenal programming. You can have the best kids ministry and the best music and the best outreaches and the best building and facilities and the best preachers and best whatever's best small groups, best everything, and if you don't have love, the first love, if you don't have that newlywed love for Christ, you're distracting people away from what's really important. So much so that Jesus would not, he would rather not have a church than have one that misrepresents him. That, kill, that kid just killed me. As a, as a son of Jesus, It killed me. As a pastor, it scared me, you know. Because that's not what they were trying to do. You know, they probably didn't have some committee meeting where they were like, all right, guys, let's let's fall out of love with Jesus, but let's really protect doctrine, you know. And I think that's the scary part. It's probably how subtle it was in such a relatively short amount of time. So there are people in church life who are like, their, their predominant thing is like, is your church reformed? I mean, are you a Calvinist? You're not a Calvinist, you know? And people ask me that, I just laugh at them. I just laugh at them. And then my response every single time is like, well, we could talk about that, but the smartest people ever cannot all agree on it. So probably we're not going to really get into a place of really being able to be certain about it. And I know that God's called me to love him with everything I have and to love people out of that love. And I'm not really good at either of those. So as a church, we're trying to focus on those things. And the Reformed, Calvinist, whatever stuff, that'll kind of settle into place. And that answer, nobody likes that answer. People who ask that question don't like that answer. And they usually go other places. And that's fine. Because a a letter like this, where Jesus is saying, he's, he's not saying, throw out the doctrine. Bring in the false teachers. Give in to persecution. He's like, no, you hold the line on those things, but you do it out of that newlywed love for me. Otherwise, you're done. And so here's a church that literally had the best lineage of pastors I can possibly think of 
and they still kind of wound up here. And so what does that what does that mean? What is that what is that telling us? What it's it comes down to our individual abiding and pursuit of holiness and like why why we do all this stuff, you know? Jesus is not going to let his church like the people of his church make church about them. This text is proof of that. And honestly, there are probably churches all throughout time where this is exactly what like this is why the doors closed. This is why there are church buildings that are empty or that are being turned into music venues and bars and stuff like that. All over America, all over the world, there are these structures that are dead. And I think that sometimes Jesus comes in and he's like, no, no, not anymore. And that's his warning to them. And that's his warning to us. Now, I'm, do not hear me say, like, Jesus, like, we're in this exact boat as Ephesus. That's not what I'm saying. Because I don't think that, that we are. And I'm not here saying I have a word from the Lord or anything like that. All I'm saying is, the application of this, corporately, I'm not real sure about. The application of this individually, I'm 100% positive about. That we have to, as individuals, be in a place where we're letting the Lord correct us and grow us and speak these kinds of difficult truths to us. You take all those individual people listening to Jesus and whatever, and press us together, and then there's your church. And if we have a whole church of folks, a whole gathering of the saints here at the ring who are on board with this, then Jesus makes a promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's his promise. Just you, you, just, you keep going. You keep making it. You, keep, you, keep make, you have to make sure that Jesus is, is the reason you do everything. Not just for him, but from him. You keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. And I promise you, the tree of life that was put out of bounds in Genesis 3 is brought back into bounds in Revelation 22. That's how the story ends. We, we, there's these beautiful bookends of, of redemption and goodness and grace. And so his promise is there. And so all I want to focus on here at the end, in the last few minutes, is verse 5. What do you do? What do you do if you're in a place where you're like, man, I don't know. (laughs) You know? Because maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're being like, no, I absolutely, I don't love the Lord like I did. And pick a point, you know? I mean, I believe that some of you are probably like, I've never loved the Lord more than I do right now. And I, man, I love that. I celebrate that with you. Don't, don't, you walk out of here like feeling weird about that. You let him affirm it. If you, if you have never been more deeply in love with Jesus than you are today, I applaud that. I'm so grateful that you are in this room. But I know that there are some of us who would like immediately be like, yep, yep, 
I used to just, mm. and now it's just kind of, meh. Look at what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the work you did at first. That's three, that's three steps. You like structure? You like organization? Jesus has met you in that moment. Remember, from where you have fallen. Like he's literally saying like, sit down and remember what it was like. You know? Think about it. Don't put it out of your mind. I think for some it's real easy to be like, well, I mean, I was young. You know? I know... Quite a few of you, um, like, would probably go back to, like, your college age time, you know? And it's so easy just to chalk that up. Like, well, you know, I was a kid. We were young and dumb, you know? You may have been young, and you were probably dumb. But your love for Jesus was real. It was real. Think about that. He's saying, remember where you've fallen from. Sit, stand there at the bottom and look up and be like, man, I used to be there and now I'm here. Or however you, however you need to think about it. It works for a marriage too, you know. Sit down and think about it. What was it like when we were newlyweds? Man, we were in love. Cool, do that with Jesus. Maybe it's when you first came to know him. Maybe it was when you first really began to grow and understand who he is. I mean, whatever. Think about it. What was that like? It's like, bring that into your mind. And the second thing he says is, repent. Repent of the distance between where you are now and where you were then. Repent means to, it means to turn. It means to change your mind. It's like, it's just the, this entire thing of being like, I'm not going to stay where I am. The marriage equivalent would be like, I'm refusing to settle into some like humdrum like marriage or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give up on that. That first love, that's, that's real. It's attainable. It's, it's, a, it's abundant. It's good. And I'm, we're not going to sit back and just be mediocre. And so with Jesus, it's the same thing. You're like, okay, I'm, I may be 20 years removed from when I was that on fire and in love with him, but I can, that's what he wants for me. Take all the youth and like whatever stuff, and lay it aside, there was something real, and I want to get back there. I'm turning from my stagnance, and I'm going right back to where that was. So he's saying, remember and acknowledge the distance, and then repent of that. And then, look at what he says. Um, Do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. So I think this is like for real, absolutely 100%. Like, what did I do then that was tied to that love for Jesus? So if, if, you, if you look, you're thinking back then, what did I do a lot? Like, man, I was in, I loved the Bible. I don't love the Bible now. You think that's random? No. If you're like, man, I could not wait to get to church and just sing My hands in the air in freedom was, I mean, that was like constant, and now it is a rarity. You think that's just coincidence? No, they're connected. 
If you look back on that, and I used to write out all these prayers, and I would pray for people and keep up with them, and I would journal, or I would read, or I would do, I had, my disciplines were so on point, and I was very quick to share my faith with people, and I was just not, I, whatever it was, he's saying, do the things you did at first. I think about the, the musical worship culture at the ring, you know. And I think that I think that there was there was something to it. And it's real easy for us the older we get to laugh at like, oh yeah, we used to the ring used to go for like six hours and people were laying on the ground and pray and do all this kind of stuff, whatever, and like chalk that up to be like, oh we were so immature. No. So maybe you need to put your hands in the air. You know? Maybe you need to, to get back into the Word. Maybe you need to bust out some of those old journals that are in a, in a box somewhere in your house. Maybe there's some disciplines that need to come back in. Maybe there are some of those things you need to do the works you did at first. That's what you would do in a marriage, right? Every marriage counselor would say, never stop dating your spouse. So you want that newlywed love? Well, start dating again. Rekindle some things. There are things that you would do to get the spark going again, right? In a very not weird way. Same thing with Jesus. What do you need to get that first love, that new Christian, I cannot believe that Jesus would rescue me from the pit and that he knows my name and he wants me and chose me and died for me and has given me a new heart and a new life and a new name and a secure future and this identity that doesn't matter what I do or what I look like or where I'm from or how I talk or any of this kind of other bull, this identity that what he says about me is who I am and he says I am a saint and I am good and I am his and for that to make you just want to go nuts when the band starts playing. And just crazy, crazy, crazy. I can't wait to have time alone with the Lord and the Word and all those things. And he's saying, don't forget what that was like. Repent of it and do what you used to do. Figure out what works and do it. It's important enough for him to remove the church from the city of Ephesus. It's important enough for us. I don't know where this meets you. I have no idea. And again, I'm not laying this, this teaching over us as a group, but I bet there's some of you that are sitting there being like, just shut up. <laughs> okay. It becomes a stewardship issue. To the one who endures, the one who overcomes, Jesus says, you're going to eat of the tree, of the, eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. See, don't give up. Keep going. Don't settle. It's too important. It's too important. So we're going to keep doing the works, right? We're going to keep holding the truth. We're going to keep persevering. We're going to keep doing the things that we do at the ring. It's that first love that we've got to stay in tune with. Let all the good things that we do flow from that. We'll be golden. We'll be golden. So where does this land with you? I don't know. Still figuring out where it lands with me.
but he's got something for us. And so we're going to sing, and we're not going to manipulate you, all right? We're not going to, like, we're not going to do music for the next two hours and, like, whatever. We're just going to sing a song or two like we normally do. We're going to respond to the goodness of the Lord. We're going to pray, bless each other. We're going to go. But God has something for us this summer. I think it's, I think it's a turning point in a lot of ways for us. It's going to be good. So let me, let me pray as the band comes back. Let's stand together. Jesus, I could, uh, I could talk for hours about the things that you stirred in me just through studying and preparing for tonight. and I feel like I just left so much out, but I just ask that you would fill in the gaps. That you'd help us to understand how seriously you take the first commandment. That you walk among us and you, you have an opinion, you weigh in on, the, on these things, you are, uh, you're active and you want to lead us. And you love us enough to tell us the truth. I'm grateful that you loved this gathering of saints in the city, in Ephesus. You loved them enough to tell them when they were missing the mark. And you loved them enough to refuse to allow them to make church about something else besides you. And you have that same love for us. So to those who are walking more deeply in love with you than ever, I pray that you would affirm that and that the enemy wouldn't get in and make them feel weird about stuff or whatever, that you would just speak that truth. But for those who have who have kind of lost it, Pray that conviction would set in. That you would help them to to see, and not just them, us. I'll be inclusive about it. You'd help us to see how far we've fallen, and to repent of that, and to do the works we used to do. Help us to see that as man makes so much sense. I pray that we would not be casual about this, because you are not casual about this. And that perhaps this could be one of a number of turning points around the room in a return to you. So help us, help us to get the Bible back out. Help us to bust out the Passion 1999 CD. If that's what, if that's what gets us rolling, that's fine. If shout to the Lord on repeat is what it takes, then may it be so. What is it going to take, Lord? Only you know that. As we respond to these last two songs, pray that you would would stir our affections and you would pack some dirt on and just pack down this, whatever it is that you planted in our hearts, the enemy would not be able to come in and take it away quickly and distract us. That you would rekindle that newlywed love for you. And we would refuse to settle for less.